Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. The world needs to hear your message and your story, so don't deny the world of that gift within you that the universe has given you. Someone out there needs to hear your story because it will support them in feeling hope, inspired, and even transformed. Do you want to discover how I help get my clients out of their own way, show up, and confidently share their message? I would love to extend an invitation to you to join me in my free masterclass, Start Your Own Podcast from Idea to Implementation, on Wednesday, April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find the registry link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography Podcast. Today, my guest is Tiffany Yael Maoz. She is the CEO and founder of Beverly Health, a best-selling author, a business consultant, tech wizard, and a molecular biologist. Good morning and welcome, Tiffany. How are you? Thank God. It's pure goodness. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking and making the time to be here with me today. I'm so excited and really looking forward to jumping in and sharing all about the beautiful light you put out into the world through all the work you do. So with that being said, let's jump right in. Sure. So, As mentioned, all of these lovely titles you hold, that is a hell of a lot of hats you wear and quite an impressive resume. How on earth do you find the time for all of this and how important is prioritization and organization to you in order to stay on top of things? Well, first off, you don't do everything at once. That's a given. Yeah. Um, different days, different hours, different minutes. I'm wearing different hats. And really, it's a toolkit. It's all the skills that you acquire over a lifetime. And some skills you even pick up, you don't even realize you might not directly correlate some skill with being a molecular biologist that makes me more organized or pragmatic or a better problem solver. But that was a large part of my training. Yeah. So definitely it's a process and I take it moment by moment. And for me, it's definitely getting through and doing all these things is all about just having a strategy, having a plan, knowing what to focus on. (laughs) Love it. Now I would love to know with you wearing so many hats and being a multi-passionate, what does your morning routine look like? So my morning routine is more or less the same. It's I get up in the morning, usually at the tail end, my husband and I switch gears because he has quite a long commute. So he leaves really early in the morning. So he does the super early morning kid wake up time. And then I pick things up around seven, six forty five, seven, and then kind of hold the fort until seven thirty, get everybody out the door. My kids are a little bit older now, so mm-hmm. I don't have to drive anybody to school or anything. But basically, that's the focus. And then once they're out the door, it's me time. Definitely need a reset. I have my coffee. I sit down with my planner and journal a little bit, have a little introspection time, prayer time, kind of set the feeling for the day. And then I have breakfast, usually at my desk. I might not be the best thing, but (laughs) right? Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. And that's when I do my morning reach outs. So I've tried to be a lot better about taking time at the beginning of the day to connect with people and make those connections so that then I can just dive into my work, knowing that I've made that effort to to reach out and connect with people. Because otherwise I see that I suck myself right into my work and I'll just forget <laughs> the rest of the world. So, so that's my morning routine these days. 
Excellent. And so, Tiffany, what drives, motivates, and inspires you to keep going and excelling at all that you do? So for me, it's definitely, there's two things, right? One is, I think people have to be straight up. Part of it is the money and what is money for you. And for me, it's my family and providing a future, providing, building a business that I see my kids as having the opportunity to join in and, and be a part of. Like that really inspires me. But also it's about living a life that I can look back on and be proud of. And so kind of doing it for my future 90 year old self, I want her to be like, you made the difference in the world that you were here for. So that kind of keeps me going and allows me to look in all the different directions. Yeah. Being able to look back and say, you kicked some ass over the years and accomplished a lot. It's important to be able to look back and see what you've accomplished and see that come to life and be able to look back and have that to show what you've accomplished and show what you've managed to do in your life. And to live a life that you're proud of, right? Yeah. It's not so much about pleasing others or getting some award, but at the end of the day saying, I did good things. I was, yeah. and I did good things for other people. Yeah. Making a difference that I think that becomes an intrinsic motivation that can keep you going, you know, in the yeah, day. Having, having impact. I mean, the awards and whatnot, that's all well and great. And sure. It's, they're nice to have but it's about the impact and what you leave your mark that you leave on this world for sure how long have you been a molecular biologist and what inspired your journey into that world of becoming a molecular biologist so i actually had to really think about how long <laughs> been a molecular biologist. so i'll first say when i was inspired so this is kind of stereotypical so all the parents out there knew no no it was science camp i tagged along with my cousins who were much more down and dirty. I always can handle myself. I grew up in the country. We had to pitch in. We had to do chores outside with the post hole digger, putting up fences, all kinds of stuff, right? So it's not like I didn't grow up with hard work or being outside, but my cousins were going to the science camp and my mom needed something, I guess, for me to do that summer. Right. And I said, okay, I want to go. And we got to go canoeing every day down the Peace River, which is in central Florida, and we would collect specimens and we did water tests and we just learned all these skills. I think I must have been around 11 or 12. And I just, I really enjoyed it. I felt like it was kind of like you could be an introvert and an extrovert at the same time. You could kind of be in yourself thinking, questioning, working on a singular project, but yeah, also being around other people, having fun, being outside, doing kid stuff. And Mm -hmm. um, so that I think definitely opened my eyes to the idea of science. And I had a really great high school teacher who happened to have a PhD and somehow got stuck in my small town (laughs) and actually went and visited him a few years ago just to say hi and thanks. Wow. And those mentors, those experiences really had an impact on me. I knew I could go in a couple different directions. I knew I could go into engineering, which is what I had originally was kind of leaning more towards was agricultural and biological engineering. And then just by happenstance, I switched over to biotechnology, plant biotechnology, which was the precursor to what is now molecular biology. So by the time I did my PhD, it was full on molecular biology. And for me, that was, I finished my undergrad in 2002 and started my PhD 
and stuff a few years later, but I had all my kids. I have three kids. I had them right. all during my PhD. So it's like little wow. gap. So my PhD advisor actually said I did pretty good that I did the whole thing. Master's PhD kind of condensed into seven years with three kids. So that was. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) Yeah. So it was really good. And then we moved overseas to pursue an opportunity that I had to continue my research uh, as part of an international group. So, so yeah, it's, it's been a journey. So finished my PhD around 2012. For those listening, I guess just do the math from there, but (laughs) it's been a while. I'm keeping it evergreen. I like it. Absolutely. 100%. Can you share with us a little bit about your journey and the work you do or did as a molecular biologist? Sure. So I think I was really lucky to be getting into the field at a very interesting time. So for those of you out there who have followed human genome projects and things like that was coming out in the early 2000s, that was when I was getting into my studies, my advanced studies and graduate degree. And one of the interesting things that people don't realize is that when we first started getting access to this genomic information, we only got it in bits and pieces. It wasn't like we got this huge word file that has the entire (laughs) genome in it that we could just start digging around, find things we were interested in. Scientists in those days, you got these fragments of sequences And we had to basically decode them in any way that we could. So at that time, there were some publicly available tools. They actually still exist online. But due to limitations, upload speeds and all that, we had to do things really piecemeal, like small chunks of data at a time. So the area that I was interested in was particularly plant molecular biology. I was always fascinated with plants' ability to adapt to environmental changes like drought and arid conditions and really saw myself being focused on that area. And there are some plants that are particularly adept at doing these things. And so as researchers, we really want to try and dive in and say, what is going on in these genomes that enables them to do that? And then how can we use that information to impact breeding programs or developing new varieties of plants that can withstand these tough conditions? But first we had to find it, right? We had to find what we were looking for. So my PhD advisor at the time had everybody in the lab, including his wife, taking these files in chunks. And for a month, he had us just uploading them and checking, uploading and checking, uploading, checking against these public databases, trying to find any potential genes that might be relevant there. And at some point, at the end of that month, I had just attended a two-day workshop, which was introducing this concept of bioinformatics. So bioinformatics, for those that don't know, is basically taking biology and computer science and putting them together. It's what we would now call big data analysis, but for the sciences. So it was introducing that concept. There was not an existing framework for learning those things. It was basically, you were hoping that if you were a biologist, you had a friend that was a computer scientist or coder, you know, that could like something together for you. And a few of us actually started to figure it out for ourselves. And that was what happened is I kind of just went to him and I was like, listen, will you give me a week? Just give me (laughs) one week. And if I can make a, a dent into this, we'll make a decision from there. But will you give me a week just to focus on seeing if I can implement something? And he said, okay. 
And at the end of the week, I had managed to put our entire set of genomes that we had, all those chunks of it, and create our own database and run it on a machine through the university's computing system that I created a relationship with, taught myself enough bash and Perl scripts to code <laughs> enough to create these databases and to run it against all the public databases. And within hours, I had done all the work that they had done within a month. Wow. So my PhD advisor was like, all right, you were never that great at the bench work anyway. So we think <laughs> you should just stay with the computer part. And so my switch happened about midway through my studies. So as I said, I was there for seven years, but definitely the last three years, I would say, I was doing almost purely computational stuff, really trying to understand the genome and how plants have these amazing ability to adapt. And these days, if this is something you're interested in, for those of you listening, there is yeah. a whole field of study just for this. But back then it was, you got to make it work. You got to learn it on the fly, you know, yeah. get up as you go. So yeah, so that was my evolution through my studies. And then I moved here to Israel, which is where I live now to pursue an international program and where I was invited to be part of an international research group leading a team of, eventually I took on a project to lead a team of European researchers where we actually created a tool for testing new software that was being developed to kind of validate is the new software that's being developed accurate, less accurate, more accurate right. than that are currently out there. And that was a really amazing experience was now talking about software. Yeah. And because of that, I was picked up by a startup and here in Israel to help them do very similar things to evaluate the quality of their software that they were developing for analyzing genomes. And it was amazing. It was so much fun being part of a startup, like 10 people. And being part of a startup is so awesome because you, you get to realize all the other talents that you might not realize that you have, or you might not realize this is valuable to other people. Like it's just, it comes easy to me. This is just part of who I am. So even though I started out as being a bioinformatician, analyzing the quality of their software as it relates to the biological data, very quickly I got picked up and pulled into doing customer success, which is basically I was training other scientists how yeah. to use the software and working with our R&D team, these coders to actually understand, okay, biologically, this is the way it works. So we need to make sure that the algorithms and so on work like this. So over the course of about five plus years, I found myself doing all kinds of roles in project management. I was leading product to identify new products. I was doing customer interviews. I was traveling all the time, all over the world. It was amazing. And I found out I really love business. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And I love geeking out and talking science. And I met a lot of really cool people, but I really liked business and I, I had a knack for it. So when COVID hit and they decided, I was at a point in my career, I was actually supposed to be picking up and opening a new product division uh -huh. for the company. And there was a switch off in CEOs at that time and COVID hit. And they said, listen, we know you just trained somebody to take over project management. And we know you just trained somebody else to take over the customer success role, that management. 
and you were supposed to take this on, but we're not going to keep this role. So if you'd move to California, maybe, and open up a new division over there. And I was like, I can't move to California. I got kids in school and high school. Like, this isn't going to work. And my husband is working here. So I was like, okay, my kids need me anyway. Everybody remembers what COVID was like. And with no extended family here, it was really, the kids really did need me at home. So I was just like, all right, I'm just going to take a break. And before I decide what I'm going to do. And during the course of those things, the first thing I did was I started working with other women in STEM who are CEOs and founders, talking to them about product and advising them and doing some coaching and consulting for startups in my area and in related areas and eventually just branching into working with other small business owners too. But COVID definitely was like metamorphosis time. Yeah, uh, for a lot of people. And yeah, you being sure. one of them. What, yeah, what yeah. A shift. And so I would love to know then how in the hell do you go from molecular biologist to publisher? Yes, right? <laughs> Can so, you walk me through that? So that was really interesting. So, first, I was a total geek. I, I love. I have always been a reader and love to read. And you can't see now, but in front of me, I have my desk and it's surrounded like a giant U shape over top of books. (laughs) Um, And this is our library. And I just, I've always loved books. So what happened was that I found myself doing more and more consulting for small business owners. And one of them that had come to me was a good friend of mine. And her business started blossoming during COVID. And she was like, I want to leverage this. I want to get more clients of this type. And I said, okay, let's do a marketing analysis and let's do some strategy planning and let's see what we come up with. So we talked about her goals. We talked about existing clients and what was doing well. And we looked at all these factors and we brainstormed a couple of ideas and pros and cons. And the one that came back as the strongest option for her was to create a book. And I said, this is the end of our work together, but I was really curious about this. You know, everybody finds themselves on rabbit holes here and there on YouTube. And I had discovered book publishing. A lot of people got into book publishing during COVID, self-publishing. So I was like, let's do it together. And so she was game. And so we, we did this whole project together and it was such an amazing learning experience. And I just fell in love with the concept of it. And I just, I kind of let it go. And I just kept coming back to this concept of, wow, this is a business. This is a totally different business model than just consulting, right? This is something I could see myself doing on into my seventies and being happy with because it's a business that can grow. It's a business you can build a team with. It's a business that leaves a legacy and that has an impact. And one of the things I was struggling with at that time with being a, a consultant is that you get burnt out when you yeah. know, you're advising people and they don't follow through or things don't quite pan out the way they wanted to. And it's kind of like forgotten after a while. And it becomes, you start to feel like things are ephemeral. They're just like fading away into the mist. And what can we do to actually have a really, a more tangible long-term impact on businesses? And I was like, the more I thought about it, I like, this could be it. Like this could really help people to grow their businesses, to tell their stories and people from all over the world. So it was something that I got excited about and I just couldn't really see how it was going to come together at first. So I actually opened the company officially in summer 2021, but I didn't do anything with it. I just kind of like, I opened the LLC and just let it sit. 
And then the following summer, I started pushing it and said, okay, I'm going to create a new program where I work with entrepreneurs that actually want to create a book. They want to create a book funnel, but they want handholding and they want to actually create something for the long term. I mean, to do this kind of work, you really, you have to be in it for the long game. And, yeah. then, and it's an investment now for future, many future returns. So I got some beta testers on board and they've been so much fun. They're all in the writing stage now, but helping them to look at their business and understand where's the opportunity and then to use that information to say, okay, what do my customers need? What's the thing that I can help them with through a book that will get them those first wins and that will allow us to start building a relationship before they've even talked to me on the phone. And so that when it does come time for me to talk to them on the phone, they've already started learning. They already know I'm the right person to work with them. They already know my values and my voice, you know, the way yeah. I communicate. And they know it works for them. It makes it so much easier to have conversations and it saves so much time if you already have those warm leads. And also if it's all automated, which a lot of people struggle with. But because of my tech background, I set that up for them too. <laughs> so they're like, oh, The wow. foundation's already laid. Yeah. So where do you see the future of publishing being and where do you see it going? So I think in some ways publishing as a reader, which I know you're also a reader, like mm -hmm. I, I think we kind of have to prepare ourselves for a lot of crappy books that are going <laughs> to be coming out. Um, I think that self-publishing has been a blessing and mm -hmm. a curse in many ways because the thing is that it's a blessing because there are so many stories that need to be told. There are yeah. so many people that have had amazing experiences and have learned tremendous things that they need to share. And we're so lucky to have access to all that so easily that it's so easy for people to publish these days. The problem is that it's getting harder and harder, I think, for readers to find the books that they're looking for is okay. one. And for quality, to have a good quality book that actually meets the needs of the reader it's just there's not as much vetting when everybody's self-publishing as there was when it's traditional publishing. The traditional publishing house, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That That is one downside of it. But are you seeing a big shift in terms of people who are wanting to write and publish their own books moving away from the traditional publishing style? And if so, why do you think that is? And what's facilitating that shift, do you think? For sure, there's a huge shift. The question really is now is, most people, I would say, want to go independent because they see that they can have so much more control over the process, which right. is what a lot of people want. They want control and they know that they can get higher royalties. The problem is that when they're doing that, they don't have access to the same resources or distribution networks that larger publishers do. And so some of them have picked up on that and realized that what they need to do usually is to partner with somebody and to find some sort of in-between. So some people are starting to do that, but it's also still an area that a lot of people are uncomfortable with. They're like, wait a second, if you're not a traditional publisher, are you just scamming people? And yeah, it's, it's still a little bit this gray area that I think hasn't fully resolved and doesn't have a strong form or shape in the industry, but it's getting there. And I think the Independent Book Publishers Association is doing a lot to kind of help inform and navigate and to show where the future should go for book publishing for small independent presses. But definitely people are going, they want to be publishing on their own. They don't want to go through traditional publishers unless 
they're really trying to get New York Times bestseller status. You know, if and, they that, have- and that route takes a lot longer too to get the book out there. It takes at least, I would say, hazard a guess, at least a couple of years yeah. to get your book out there. And you have to really work with a PR agency. You can't yeah. sit behind your desk and expect that it's just going to happen. I think people underestimate the amount of work that it takes to really to get to that kind of level that, you know, they have to promote themselves and big publishers, the traditional publishers, they don't do that for you either. Might put an ad out, but they're relying on you and they're relying on the fact that you should already have a community, a network of hundreds of people that are ready to buy your book. Otherwise it's usually not worth it for them unless you already have a reputation as a previously published author, in which case you probably do have that community. Yeah, for sure. But the self-publishing too, I mean, you have to rely on your community to help get the book out there and it's all part of it, but it's so much, I think, easier with the self, not sorry, not self-publishing, but going, well, going that route as opposed to the traditional publishing to get your book out there and to get the support from people and not having to, okay, you write your book, send it back for all the edits. No, they'll take parts out. They'll change parts with traditional publishing where the self-publishing, you don't have to worry about that. Because you get control. Exactly. Exactly. So we, in the publishing house that I've formed, we're doing things a little bit differently, a lot because of that product background that I talked about, Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to cut down on that. Like, how do we still create a quality book, but without putting so much all that annoying work on the writer to like, oh, they just took out four chapters of my book. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah, I actually created a whole process by which we actually do beta testing very early on in our books, even from the outline stage. And we start involving a street team. That's what we call it, which I think you've heard of before too, Brad, trying to get those people ready on launch day to buy. So it's not the same as a big traditional publisher, but we're trying to work smarter so that we can still leverage a lot of those still big wins. Yeah, you hit the ground running on launch day. Yeah, but to also to leave some of that control still in the hands of the writer, letting them have a say in the cover of the book by helping them understand why we're making the choices that we are and helping them. You have to give some boundaries sometimes, but to say, listen, here's the data. And the data shows that this is where your book is going to do best. And if Mm -hmm. this is where your book is going to do best, it needs to look like it belongs on that bookshelf with those other books. So then we need a book that that fits that style and all that. And I found that when I've shown my clients the data like that, they can see for themselves. Right. Makes sense. And it's a different conversation. And I think it's different for them too. They don't feel like somebody's pushing something on them, right? Like it has to be like this. I'm the one in control. It's more about, okay, we're a team and we're working together because we have your best interests in mind. Educating them is key. Yeah. Showing them why you're making the decisions you're making. And when they can see that, it's like, oh, okay. It's like the light bulb goes on, right? Yeah. Now I get what you're trying to do. Okay, let's go that route. Right. Now, are you seeing more and more women making a shift into the world of book publishing? And if so, why do you think that is? And how is it changing the face of the publishing industry? So I think it's interesting. I can only speak about independent book publishers, mm-hmm. not, yeah. not the big industry. I don't know how things are going there, but I would definitely say among the independents, definitely seeing a lot of women 
lot of women being leaders and CEOs in this space and doing extremely well. And there's a lot of women, like the women CEOs supporting other women CEOs, which is really amazing to see. Yeah. It's not near as cutthroat as the sciences. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I am seeing definitely more of a shift there. I think it will continue. I think that also a lot of women that were editors have also started to move into the role, seeing that they can also have small independent small independent press as well. I've met a few women that have decided to do that. It's very interesting, very interesting field, seeing how things are developing. Yeah, it is evolving. Now, I want to tie this last question about women in publishing into the conversation around business and also since you have a science background into science as well, you just mentioned about how cutthroat it is. And for sure, you have to say science is a very male-dominated industry. And although we're seeing a shift with more women making the jump into entrepreneurship these days, why do you think there are so few women making the leap into science and business and being bigger players or participants in those two worlds specifically? So I definitely think that it's a lot of perception. Some of it's perception and some of it is accessibility. So perception, by that I mean, it's all about role models and or mentors, right? We've all been told that phrase or we've heard this phrase of success leaves clues. Yeah. The fact of the matter is if we can't see someone like us that's been successful recently, it's hard to find those clues. So of course, I grew up hearing about Marie Curie, but I'm sorry, she's not really doing a lot for me these days. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, I want to hear about some of these other women doing amazing things that have gone and got advanced degrees that have managed to get funding for their startup and things like that. Mm. So I think that's a lot of it. I think it's also really difficult to be in careers where, at least in the U.S., it's not. It's kind of frowned upon to have children during those years if you're serious about your career. And there's really a, a tug in both directions. I'm not the first person to say that. I think yeah. I'm extremely lucky that my PhD advisor happened to have six children and was a family guy. And I was able to be very upfront with him that I'm in my mid-20s and I'm planning yeah my PhD, but I'm also planning to have children. And this is how I see it working. And that's not necessarily a conversation you want to have with your boss. But I would also say that sometimes to make it work, you, you have to. to have that conversation. Yeah. And that ties into all the conditioning, right? Is that women, you have kids, you can't have the kids and the career at the same time. And I mean, women like yourself are shattering that and showing that no, it doesn't have to be that way. We are shifting it and it can be done, which is great because you are standing up and showing that this is possible and other women can see that. As you just mentioned, Yeah. if you model what you see, right? If you're not seeing it, then you don't think it's possible. Right. And I think it's also, how does it work if you have six kids versus if you have one kid? How does it work if you have a special needs kid? How does it yeah. work if you have ailing parents? I think when I'm talking about role models, I'm not talking about the color of our skin no. or how old we are. I'm talking about life choices and lifestyle. And we need role models that we can relate to on a personal level as well. 
this is something I really want to see more of in the next several years is seeing more of these stories come out about how these women are making it work and making it happen. For sure. It just sets the example. It sets the tone. And it's like a permission slip for other women to see that it's possible. Now, keeping in this same theme, what are your thoughts on the landscape of entrepreneurship and women-run businesses in terms of how it's evolved and how it's continuing to shift and evolve? So I think that with women and entrepreneurship, there's still a bit of a bias against women. I feel like women are still sized up when they go in for funding or something like that. Now, women that bootstrap, meaning they manage to raise their own capital from their own coffers or the friends and family fund or what have you, they're able to just do it because people believe in them and they're surrounded by people that believe in them. But it's still a challenge if you are requiring outside investment into your business to make that happen. I've heard from other women, I interviewed a woman a week or two ago, and we were Mm -hmm. talking about just this. She managed successful startup. She launched a successful startup. She has a PhD. She has an MBA. She's super smart. And she said it always took at least 10 minutes with investors just to get over that, the shock moment of how can we be smart and a CEO and all this and a mom of six kids or whatever. They just couldn't wrap their head around the fact that she could actually manage it. But then once you start talking business, you kind of get over that hump. So there's, Mm -hmm. so I think we are getting there, but it's still not, it's not the same and that's okay. But it just means we need more women investors too. And and women can be their harsh critics as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it will take time. But I do think the landscape is changing. I do believe that it is getting better and more women standing up, making room, making space for more women to, to come into their own is going to make that possible. It's just going to take more time. We st- I think we still have a long way to go, but at least the wheels have started turning and we're headed in the right direction. Yes, right? I agree 100%. What advice do you have for women looking to grow either their own business or even within a company that they work for? I would say, I think the first thing is to take some time and this could take a while to really figure out what you want. What is it that you really want? And then not to be afraid to just ask for it. I find when I look back and I see the times where I kind of tiptoed around the things that I wanted and tried to have conversations with bosses about moving up in my roles and such, and usually it backfired. When I didn't backfire is if I was just point blank. This is what I've done. This is where I see my trajectory going. This is how I think, this is what I need to do, I think, to get there. What do you think? How can you support me in this? Is it possible in this firm? What else should I be considering? When I've had those conversations, things have progressed much more rapidly and I felt much more supported in my career and career trajectory. So having the difficult conversations, which a lot of people don't want to do, as you mentioned, right? It's a tough thing. It's tough waters to navigate. Yeah, but you can't be wishy-washy. Oh, I want a more senior role. That doesn't really help. (laughs) You need to know what exactly do you want. And that's why I said you need to take time to think because when you can be very clear about your desire, then you're also clear with yourself and you know what you're willing to put into the pot too. Time and effort and all those other things as well. So, yeah. What do you think is the most significant barrier to female leadership right now? 
So I would definitely go back and say role models. We need more role models. We need more mentors that I think will make the biggest impact. And I should say the mentors do not need to be women. Like they can be men. I've been really lucky to have some great male mentors during my career, and they've been incredibly supportive and understanding of my family dynamic and respect for me and my skills and my expertise. But you need that. You need to surround yourself with that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And create that inner circle. Your what some people would call like your internal board of directors. And if you have that, you're going places like people that can make introductions for you, people that can give you ideas on how to manage work-life balance. We're so much more than just our careers. We're so much more than just our title. We need guidance. And much of us think we have to make it on our own because either somebody's going to step on our toes or somebody's going to cut us off or somebody's going to steal our idea. And it's risky. Yeah, it could happen. But Mm -hmm. if it does, you'll get another idea. You'll find another opportunity. It's not meant to be like, you got to just let it go and move on. But having that team, they can help you do that. And they can help you get there. And they can help you see those opportunities. That's it. I mean, everything comes down to support systems and community. And I think we've lost that sense of community. It's kind of slipped away from us. And I think we need to get back to that because we're not meant to do this thing called life alone. We're not meant to do entrepreneurship alone in a silo. I mean, solopreneurship can be very lonely at times. Well, I think it's getting lonely because we're all online. Yeah. I found that once I started going out and doing in-person networking events again, like small ones, like brunch or whatever, 12 people, like that kind of thing. Wow. It was just this amazing feeling. And my business picked up. My business started doing better just because I started having those in-person connections again, because you see people's eyes light up about the work that you do instead of trying to think of another social media post for the hundredth. <laughs> so you're just sitting in the room. So the brick and mortar businesses from 30 years ago, it's a different world. And, but we shouldn't lose that. We shouldn't lose those feelings. Sometimes I want to say like, yeah, I want to be like the small town business coach and, yeah. and book publisher, because I relate to those people. Yeah. I love that community feel. That connection, it's so important. As mentioned off the top, you're the CEO and founder of Beverly House. Can you tell us a bit about Beverly House and how long ago you founded it, what it's all about, everything? Sure, all the stuff. Okay, so Beverly House is the company. And through Beverly House, I have also Beverly House Press, which is the publishing arm. But I do tech what we call tech solutions, which is a lot of automation operation support, as well as business strategy. So it's like a a three-tiered approach to business and supporting our business owners slash authors to really take their business on a path of opportunities for passive income. We talk a lot about passive income, not from the book necessarily, but from opportunities within their own business that they don't necessarily realize you know, here's something that you worked on 10 years ago, that's just collecting dust. What about if we packaged it like this, or we remarket it to that? And if we put it online, and we set it up as part of a funnel, and we create a book that prepares people in advance and gives them the first win, and then we show them this product, and then they just start buying it online. And all of a sudden, you have passive income coming in from this product that was just sitting there that they invested time in developing a decade ago. So that's really what I love working with people is to help them 
figure out what's possible with their business. What could they be doing to bring their business more in a more automated fashion, Mm -hmm. have their business working for them instead of them working for their business all the time, especially the over 45 crowd. I find a lot of people, they they don't really want to stop working. They just don't want to be so burnt out and trying to work with them. And I like just being in that partnership role. Let's just working together for a year where we first just talk about business and we talk about strategy and we talk about their goals and we take time to figure that out. And then we start to come up with some ideas for a book that might make sense. And then we do all the market research too. We do the market research on their business and we do the market research on the book market. And then we look for the intersect because as a small publisher and a new author, what we really want is something that's going to rank organically, that's going to have an easy time, like something yeah. people are already looking for that we can step into that space. And so we help them with that. And then we make decisions and we create a a book idea. We create a book outline. We know roughly how long the book will be. We know how it will be structured. And then we start bringing together beta readers who work with us from the very beginning on our books, from the outline stage. As a chapter is coming together, they get feedback. We know right away if we're boring our readers. We know right away if they're getting confused or lost. And we do that because we don't want to have to rewrite an entire book. Out for Very smart way to do it. So we have different softwares that I've incorporated into our program to help us with that. So it's a longer process. I mean, if you want to write a book in a month, you could self-publish it in a month and a half. It's quite doable. But if you really want a book that people love to read and will recommend to their friends and that you know is going to help them and that you can really stand behind, it's going to take a lot more effort and it's going to take some research. Yeah. Or you want a book that's going to leave an impact. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, Otherwise, why are you doing it? We want, Exactly. We want something that it's like, really, we want it to help people. We want it to yeah. be, whether it's to entertain, to educate, to inspire, a book serves a purpose, right? For sure. So we really try to incorporate all that. And then, of course, launching the book and, and making sure it's distributed internationally and stuff like that. So it's a longer process, but... I really see how exciting it is for my entrepreneurs to see how it's coming together and to feel that confidence in what they're doing. It's really nice to see because numbers will do that. The data will inspire you. (laughs) For sure. Absolutely. Well, you can't argue with the data. It's there. It's black and white. And this is what it is. How did you come up with the name for Beverly House? Oh, so that's an interesting story. When I was thinking about publishing, I was like, okay. So the first business that I had first formed when I was working with entrepreneurs, STEM, like women in STEM, it was women in science excel. And that was just a mouthful. And I knew I didn't (laughs) want a mouthful. And while it was aspirational, it was not a particularly clever name. So I decided I wasn't going to try to be clever. I wanted something that would sound professional and something that would stand the test of time. Because for me, this really should be a legacy thing. And what came back to me was my grandmother who... When my mom used to complain that I would just sit in my room and I could just read for hours upon hours, she would just huff and go, you're just like my mother. And her (laughs) name was Beverly. And I just thought, what a tribute to her. She went with me to get my first library card. She was the one who gave me all the novels and books that I could haul away. Her house was filled with books. And it was because of her that I felt like it was okay to be a reader. Like it was natural to be a reader. And so I thought, okay, Beverly and house. My dad is was a building contractor for years, and 
than a draftsman. And I just thought for me, house and home mean everything. And that's what I really wanted to kind of make the people that I work with feel like is like they're coming into my house where we can do all these things with you, but it's also like home. It's a safe place. Like it's a place we can be together and create, we can share our visions. We can share our dreams. We can help them come together. So it's Beverly house, which I think sounds fancy enough, but it's for me, very meaningful. And we have this nice gazebo logo, which is reminiscent of the gazebo my grandfather built in the backyard. That is beautiful. What a beautiful tribute to your grandmother. Yeah. Love it. Thank you for sharing that story, Tiffany. Yeah. What would you say is the most inspiring part of your work in helping business owners share their stories with the world? What lights you up the most about that? So for me, it's really seeing the pride that they have when their story starts to come together, when they see the impact, like, that they're having on other people. Wow. Like I'm so proud of myself. I did that. I'm so proud of myself for doing something smart about my business, but doing it in a way that's really helping other people just seeing kind of like their shoulders stand up straight and go back a little bit. And like, they're <laughs> that sense of pride. And just, they're proud. And yeah. I've helped them get to that. That to me is like, wow. And then you hear their stories. I've been blown away lately. I have a couple of different entrepreneurs that I work with who've actually told me about charity funds that they have just on the side, things that they do to help other people out. And they're like, but the business needs to support it. I don't know if it should be separate in my financial goals, whatever. And I'm like, no, it's part of it. But I think, wow, what a beautiful thing when I'm helping them. For me, my goal is I want to help more people do more good in the world, right? Yeah. How great is that? I'm helping them to see their visions come to life. And they have their own charity that they're giving out. That ripple effect. And I was just like, wow, they inspire me seeing what they do and then seeing the pride that they have in themselves for what they're able to, when they complete it, it's just amazing. It's one of the best feelings in the world to have impact and give back to another human being and then see them, that effect ripple out to others. It's so powerful and beautiful. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Now you are also a best-selling published author. In addition to being a publisher, can you tell us about your book, the title, when it was released, the inspiration behind the book? Okay, so I will try on this one a little bit. <laughs> I published several books, not all of them bestsellers, right? But the bestseller book that I am in is called Sacred Redesign. And I'm not that much of an author. I mean, I'm an author. I've written books. I've published books. And they're good books, but they're practical books. <laughs> I'm a very practical person. And Sacred Redesign was a multi-author book that I was invited to participate in. And it was the first time I really wrote from my heart. And in it, I shared my story of moving from being a scientist and totally changing my path and finding a new direction to take in my own career. And it was very unnerving to kind of lay myself bare like that, but it was a very good experience. And I'm so thankful that I had the support of the coaches and the publisher that was managing the project. It was so amazing. So it came out, I think a year ago. And because of that, I've actually, I'm looking into doing something similar, these anthology books with other coaches because a lot of them have 
clients that they work with or their masterminds where they've undergone tremendous transformations and they want to tell their stories. And I was like, wow, I had such an amazing experience. It was so good for me. That would just be amazing to share that with others, some of them, my clients as well. So your publishing house, Beverly House, is that more focused on solo books and you're looking to get into multi-author books now? So we're doing both. We're going to be doing both. I do have different, another imprint, but the imprint is for, I would say more faith-based entrepreneurs and speakers and things related to that, because I do have a lot of clients that definitely connect in that way. And it's something I also really feel drawn to and feel like that's something that I want to contribute to putting out in the world. And then Beverly House Press, that imprint is primarily business. So it can also be telling stories of transformation of people in business and through business. So if it becomes large enough that it can have its own imprint, then we will definitely consider doing that. But for now, we'll be part of Beverly House Press. Tiffany, what do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? My unique skill set or superpower? I think it's probably just kind of just have my own drum. Like I just beat to the rhythm of my own drum. I, I like to have friends and I like to fit in, but sometimes I feel like you just got to go after what you love and you'll find a way to make it work. I mean, I'm not one of those people that's like, find your passion and be poor forever or anything like that. I think you got to make it work and it's going to yeah. take work, but it's a lot easier to work at something that you really enjoy and that you can get behind than it is to do something where you think it looks good on a resume. And I think that's it, being willing to put in the work and being willing to just say what you want, what you like. Go after what you want. Be willing to try it, you know, just try. Speaking of success, how do you define that word? What does the word success mean to you? So that's tricky. So to me, me, success is like, it's a more internal state, I would say, of satisfaction. It's like deep satisfaction with yourself, with where you are in life, with your family and with your relationships, your business relationships, your friendships. Because I feel like when everything is kind of just coasting, you feel really good. And to me, that's success. Success is not to me the high, the big contracts. And to me, that's stress and anxiety. (laughs) I want to have those things, but To me, the ultimate is just being completely at peace with everything that's going on. Things are just going. They're going good. Relationships are good. The family is good. That's success to be in that peaceful zone. Yeah. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before you learned it? And what was your life like after you learned it? So I think that one of the things that I've always struggled with is that trying to be the best that I can. And I think a lot of us are brought up to be the best that we can. And we should always put forth our best. When the fact of the matter is, you don't always need to be the best that you can. (laughs) There really is. I really could wear myself to the ground. I still do sometimes. I have to pull back because I feel like I always need to give my very best. And sometimes it just doesn't matter. Like it's not going to make a difference all the time. And then there are times when you really do need to shine. You need to give the very best that you have. But color coding your spreadsheet is not. Yeah. So I think for me, I I just, I always want things to be the way it is in my head. Yeah. Sometimes I have to step back from that and be like, you know, it's okay. It's this is this for this. It's okay. Because I have something else that's really important that I need to. to, Prioritizing. 
Yeah, exactly. And prioritizing yourself because if you're always striving, you've got to be the best at this. You've got to do the best. At it. You're going to burn yourself out and then you're totally. no good to anybody or anything. Totally. So true. What does the word empowerment mean to you? It's about support. To me, that's like, that's lending support to others. So that could be financial, that could be emotional, verbal, physical, making an introduction. Empowering someone is being a foundation for them, that they can take that next step, that they can be brave because they know somebody's there and they're watching and they're there for them. Love that, being a foundation for someone. Love it. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions just be one, two, three word answer type thing, okay? Okay. How would you describe yourself in one word? Evolving. (laughs) (laughs) If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? Stop paying so much attention to other people. Really doesn't. That competition mindset. Comparison is the thief of joy. For sure. What is one thing you want but cannot buy with money? Enduring faith. What is one of your favorite entrepreneurial books? Decisive. Who is the author of that? Dan. (laughs) Here, let me just look at my book collection. (laughs) Chip and Dan Heath. Awesome. I lend it out a lot. (laughs) What is your favorite self-care practice? Reading. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. And that concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly (laughs) scheduled program. Tiffany, who in your life has had the biggest impact on you and why? So that one's tough. I have an amazing family, so it's who among the giants there. Yeah. And I would say the one that had the biggest impact would be my dad, because he's the one who told me when I, I was the first to go to college in my family, and it was a really big deal. And I was going to go as an undecided major, and he said, no. He said, you can't do that. You have to pick something, but you can always change your mind. And that was the best piece of advice that I've ever gotten, and I continue to go back to is sometimes you just have to decide. You can always change your mind later. You can always do something else later, but you just have to decide. You got to go for something. Definitely. That was, that was a huge impact. That's powerful advice and very true. I mean, we think so often that we make that decision and we're stuck with it. No, you can change your mind. It's okay to change your mind. Yeah. It's allowed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he was. A, I don't think he was so thrilled because the way it turned out. Because when I switched from engineering, I remember we went out to dinner and we went, and I told him I was switching from engineering to to working under the faculty of agriculture for my undergrad. And so he said, "So you're going to be a farmer?" And I said, "No, <laughs> so engineering farmer. Not exactly what he wanted." But yeah, it does not compute. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but yeah, you can always change your mind. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What aspect of your personality do you think has been most helpful in your career? Definitely, I'm a problem solver. I was a huge MacGyver fan growing up, and I think that it just kind of rubbed off. Like, I wanted to be the female MacGyver. You just, if you think about a problem from enough different angles, you can come up with a solution. MacGyver, yes, I remember (laughs) that show. (laughs) Are we showing our age? Well, they brought it back, so brought it back. They, they've remade it, right? I don't. It's nowhere near as good, though. Oh. Not even close. Too no. Bad. Yeah. Too bad. What is one lesson your career has taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point in their life? You're more than your title, 
And that's really hard when you're working for somebody else because titles equate to authority. They equate to salary. It's really hard, but it's not everything. And I would definitely encourage everyone to keep a list of your wins and and to assess yourself for more than that, because there's going to come a day when you're going to have to change careers, either by force or by choice. You need to be able to fall back on those. So definitely remember that. Beautiful. What's something surprising that you've learned about yourself in the last year? I try to get too much done in too little time. (laughs) I plan. I'm a great planner, but sometimes I try to do too much. Definitely. If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why? Okay. So I had this woman in mind and I forgot. (laughs) Now it's like, okay, let's let's see if you know her name. She's a famous actress, not living, and she was she was considered to be one of the most beautiful women in the world. She was Hungarian originally, but what made her very interesting, and that sometimes we see things about her, Hedy Lamar, I think. Hedy Lamar, okay. Hedy Lamar. She was a scientist, and some of her foundational research was later used in developing the same tools that we use for Wi-Fi technology, okay? And it was used in World War II. She was super smart, gorgeous, and she had a major pivot in her career. And I would love to hear about what that was like in the dinner table conversations that she must have endured sitting around people who think that she's just a pretty face when in fact she's this brilliant woman. Yeah, I think I would love to have been her friend and to have experienced that. To me, that would just be so cool. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? Definitely invest more in relationships and making memories and travel experiences and the stock market (laughs) and and the stock market. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, Tiffany, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, your tribe, your corner of the world, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart? I would say find something to be grateful for every day, even if it's hard know who you are and be willing to share that with others, raise other people up. Don't be afraid to tell your story and don't wait till it's too late. Make sure your kids know who you are and what you stand for and be consistent in your work and in your development of yourself because that's the only way to get better and stronger. But leave a legacy. Beautifully said, Tiffany. Thank you so much for taking and making the time to sit down and chat with me today and share about the beautiful light that you put out into the world through the work that you're doing. And I'm so grateful to be connected to you and to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. I've thoroughly enjoyed every minute of our conversation. I know that you and I have been trying to do this for a while. So it's so nice to finally have you here and have had the opportunity to sit down and share with you. So thank you for being here with me today. I appreciate you. My pleasure. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Tiffany Yael Maos. She is the CEO and founder of Beverly House, a best-selling author, business consultant, tech wizard, and a molecular biologist. Thank you so much, Tiffany. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day. You too, Brad. Take care. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca and follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. 
Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.